Alright, let's get started on cultivating a self-practice workshop. Everybody has this sheet. What this workshop is going to focus a little bit more on is the asana practice, pranayama, and meditation, and how we're going to implement that into a daily practice. Right? We're going to talk a little bit about routine, but the Dinacharya workshop that I teach, I think, I think June 2nd, um, we focus on more of the things that you can do off of the mat, and we touch a little bit on asana. Here we focus more on asana, pranayama, meditation, and just touch on daily routine stuff, right? Because what this daily routine stuff off the mat can really do is set you up to getting into a routine in general, right? So instead of getting out of bed and just rushing out and doing all the things that just kind of are crazy and not scheduled or, you know, not really, we don't have a system necessarily or a way of waking up where we're preparing ourselves for the day. We're just kind of thrown off, we're checking our email, we're checking our phone, we're doing all these things before we really mentally prepare ourselves. Sometimes taking two or three really simple things every day, one is going to pass the five off the dosha, but two, it will get you into the habit of not just rushing into your day, but I think setting yourself up for success mentally, emotionally, and ultimately physically, right? To separate the mind, to talk about it, but it's the same thing as the body. And so, um, when I'm talking about daily routine stuff, I'm talking something about as simple as waking up first thing in the morning, touching your heart, and saying a prayer. Right? We all have 30 seconds to, you know, thank God or thank uh, our dog. You know, by my house, I think it's by my house, worship something. Right? <laughs> Even your cat, I think you said. Where it's just the idea is that you're, it's good for the ego to, to, to realize that there's something beyond you on this earth. <laughs> universe. Right? So the idea of just giving gratitude and thanks for even taking your first breath, I think is a really important thing. You know, if you have a spiritually based religion that you um, are drawn to, then that's it too. I mean, it's, it's all welcoming. You know, there's, it's not about figuring that stuff out. It's not about figuring what God is out in that moment. It's just about giving gratitude and, and staying connected to what, what you're already connected to. So, saying a prayer is one option. Um, also, just getting up in the morning, um, drinking a cup of room temperature water. Right, pretty easy to do. Splashing cool water on your face. Like, will at least wake up the senses. Right? If you're slow and sluggish in the morning, the cooler the water, the better. And a little shocking, maybe, but it will get the senses moving and get you motivated. Um, also, if you're uh, if the dosha um, predominant, or if you tend to have dry eyes due to vata, um, uh, we have rose hydrosol out there. You can also get it from the Ayurvedic Institute. You can spray rose hydrosol in the eyes. It's really refreshing and it helps with dry eyes or irritated eyes. My stomach advising commercial. Ideally, you're having a bomb movement in the morning. Dr. Lada always says those are the luckiest people are the ones that do a number two in the morning. <laughs> but um, also implementing what I just was referring to, which is uh, Udiana Banda or Agnisara. Now, and if you're unfamiliar with those, um, when we start doing a little bit of movement, um, I'll demonstrate and we'll practice Udiana. 
um, vinyl. So if you're unfamiliar with it, you can actually see it. That's the first place to start. You need to really um, be more adapted with the Anabanda before you move on to Agnisar or Nali anyway. So, and then, you know, in the yoga classes, you'll learn about Nali and Agnisar. Um, so you can take that practice. Abhyanga, a lot of you that are in the 21 days of wellness have been practicing self wellness on. Even if you were just to do that once or twice a week, I didn't have to do it every day, but that's just something you can implement into daily routine. So it can be really simple, such as saying a prayer first thing in the morning, which is 30 seconds long, right? not even. Or it can get as complicated as doing Abhyanga on a regular basis. Or taking multiple things and doing those two to three things. What I recommend is taking two or three things. Right? Don't start making a list. <laughs> Being like, oh, I'm gonna do all this in the morning. It's gonna be great. And then, yeah, then this falls away. And it's only late for work this morning. And I can't do this, and it falls apart. Right? It's just like something tightly woven. You just start pulling the string out, and then all unravels. Right? So just start with a couple of things and do them regularly. It's better to do one or two things regularly and start doing a bunch of things and then end up a month and not doing any of them. So that's, that's the theory um, when we're talking about uh, just incorporating something and being into our Do you have any questions about those? Again, I know I've talked to some people individually about certain things and I've had consultations with people and I've recommended certain things, but um, you know, if any questions about, about that, we cover more of that in the Dean Cherry workshop where you get um, more options. But really consider what works for your life, right? And what you're willing to do. What fits into your life and what you're willing to do. Those are two things that you have to really answer before you do anything, right? Because if it doesn't fit into your life, you're not going to do it. If you're not really willing to do it, it doesn't make sense. Um, the one and uh, last thing that I just want to mention uh, about uh, daily ritual is that I think the mo- one of the most important things about uh, daily rituals, no matter how mundane they might be or what they seem to be, I think over time it helps us to create a sense of reverence for our own being. We're taking the time out to do these things that help us really just nourish and take care of ourselves. And so I think over time, there's a a sense of reverence to life that ends up getting cultivated. And I think that's really important if we're we're truly pursuing yoga, a spiritual path. It's about finding that in everyday those mundane things. I read a really good book and I paraphrase the title, but um, there's something like after enlightenment, do water, do do laundry, carry water. Yeah, yeah, after enlightenment, doing the laundry, Jack Horn. But it's just really smart. And it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when you're reading, like, it all triggers. So, I mean, it feels like it's stuff that you kind of know, but you need to be reminded of. And, you know, you, you, there's some really, I think, like, beautiful um, aha moments. And it's, it's, it's really the, those days, or it's those activities during the day, that we, we need to really connect to that, that reverence. It's, it's, so just a show of hands, who is... Practicing asana. Let's just start with asana. 
physical poses. Who's practicing yoga poses on their own? Not even on a daily basis, but on their own. You're feeling comfortable with getting on a mat and doing some yoga poses. Okay, good. Here's a new place to start. Who is practicing pranayama or some sort of breath work on your own? Feeling comfortable with some sort of pranayama? Great. And meditation. Great. And now, who's practicing all of those every day? Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard. You know, when we say that it, it can be difficult, you know, to practice those every day. And I consider myself a self-proclaimed master of 20-minute practices. <laughs> um, because I can work anywhere from 8 to I got 15, 18-hour work days. And you think um, you're a yoga teacher, you're that's, you, you're not a very good yoga teacher. <laughs> but I didn't have that until I opened up my business and I became a business person. But the idea with that is, is those days are really full. So I need to carve out time. And I like the idea of the word carve, right? Because it has to fit in to what your day is like, okay? So it has to work, otherwise you're not going to do it. And the first myth I want to get over is that it needs to be an hour and a half long. Okay? You can get that out of your head now. The idea is that consistency is going to overpower quantity in terms of length of time. So I think this is a really great case to say quality really overpowers quantity in terms of length of time and consistency. Especially meditation. Meditation is one of those it's there's a cumulative effect to that. I mean, just like every time that you do an asana, just like every time you do a breathing technique, it empowers it every time you do it. And the effects of meditation will get empowered every time you do it. So the consistency is pretty important. So we're going to get to a point where, at this point, we're doing it more regularly. So that we're not whipping ourselves, you know, like, oh, I didn't do my meditation today. Like, it's not, a, it's not about that. But at least at this point, starting to do it more regularly, and also including, you know, the times that you do come in for a group class. But for those that are in the teacher training, those are even that aren't. There's a certain empowerment in just being confident with. Knowing that every day you've got a practice to go to, okay? and you know what that is, and there doesn't have to be a lot of intellectualizing or implying about it. It just is there for you. And so, by the end of this session, everyone will have around a 20-minute practice that they're going to walk away with. You're going to be able to build on that. You're going to be able to change it, modify it, all those things. But the idea is that to give you a framework and then build around that framework and then do what you will with it and then, and then practice that and allow it to evolve, essentially. So what we're focusing on, if we do a little bit more in-depth sequencing, 
lessons in uh, advanced training, the vinyasa workshop that you teach us later in the year. But here, we're going to give you the basic framework of what a class will look like, like the anatomy of a class. And then you're going to work within that framework to cultivate a practice. And Jim refers to, and I, and I do too oftentimes, but when we're talking about a recipe for success, when we're talking about a practice or a sequence, it's, it's kind of like a recipe where, and this is where the true words of vinyasa prama come from, right? It's, it's the idea of placing something in a specific way, ultimately to, to attain a specific effect. So vinyasa doesn't mean a very fast-paced process connected with breath and you're moving all the time and you're going like this and you're doing 500 seven centimeters. That's not vinyasa, right? I mean, that's what we know it as in the West because I don't know if it's people in the class, I guess the name. But the, 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 when we break down the word, you know, it, it's, it's to place um, something specifically in a correct or effective way and to create an, an effect. <clears throat> what, you can, what we'll do is we're going to go through this and then we'll do something more practical. Some of the things that we talk about before we plan is what is the main ingredient, what additional ingredients are going to be in that recipe, right, or in, that, in, in, in the practice, and then what preparation is needed and in what order. And then some of the other uh, ingredients right, that we talk about is what are the immediate needs, what are the long-term goals, what are the responsibilities we have for the rest of the day, and the amount of time we have. So those last two are really about how are we going what, to, what time do we have, like how is this going to actually be carved into our day, right? We really want to pay attention to that. And then what are our immediate needs and what are our long-term goals? This could be anything from a physical, you know, in my classes I have you connect with your intention for class. It's, you know, the idea of it being, everything being that, whether it's, you know, I tell people, I bring it up more in my fitness facility classes because a lot of people come in, I think, for exercise purposes. And, uh, and that's fine. And I tell people, no matter what your intention is, it's completely valid. If you came in to get stronger abs or get your yoga butt on, like, I accept that and I want to support you in that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to support your intention. Really help you to facilitate whatever potential you have inside of you. Like, I'm just a facilitator. So I completely validate anybody's intention, but I say allow it to evolve. So it's the same thing with setting yourself up with immediate and, and short-term and long-term goals. It's it's really a reflection of what your intention is. What is what do I need? What do I want to get out of my practice? Do I need something more restorative? Do I need to de-stress? Do I need to strengthen certain parts of my body? And then what are my long-term effects? Maybe it's about losing weight. Maybe it's about being less dependent on a pharmaceutical drug. Maybe it's enlightenment. Maybe it's finding more clarity, peace of mind. So the long-term goals and the short-term goals, they don't necessarily have to sync up, but it's a good idea to have them, especially for kapha individuals. Kapha predominant people, if there's a kapha imbalance, goals, and motivation. 
those are the things that are going to get you off the couch to start eating hoops. <laughs> because that's what motivates you. You need motivation and stimulation. But everybody needs that. Everybody needs it. Not just upper predominant people. We all need something to really feel like we're cultivating that life. We're talking about what is the main ingredient. You know, this, this gets, in my opinion, a little bit more complicated. It gets a little bit more in-depth. We don't focus too much on it. I want you to have a pretty general practice for those that are already teachers or more adaptive practicing and teaching. You might focus on maybe an apex pose, more complicated pose that you want to attain in a singular practice. Or you might have, you know, more idea of how the doshas at this point um, are affected by your awesome practice. But I think that's a little bit more of an advanced practice. Um, so that might be one of your ingredients that you're focused on, you know, in terms of how you're going to cultivate your sequence. But at the beginning, we just want really like a basic practice to go to. Any additional ingredients, posture, breathing techniques, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, we have in here is more isn't always better, which I really stand firmly behind. Or which I really stand firmly behind. Um, what preparation is needed in what order. We'll talk a little bit about this and we'll move through it practically so you guys understand how to move from something more basic to something more complicated. So this is when we go into our second tier of training. We really focus on this and really breaking down poses and getting people really involved in how to get into more complicated poses. Right? At first, we just want to start off the basic practice, 20 minutes. So you're probably not going to have a lot of time to start doing right behind your head. Really hypermobile, and even if you are, probably shouldn't be doing that like seven a.m. in the morning just because you can't, right? So, you know, when we're talking about the preparation for more complicated poses, but we definitely want to warm up. Then we want to prepare ourselves for, you know, we want to prepare the joints and the spine for um, the poses that we want to do. Important points to remember, honor where you are, that day at a time physically. Always start with where you're at today. Right? If you injure your ankle, guess what? You're not going to be doing full lotus. I know it sounds ridiculous to say something like that, but I get so many people in class, and they come in, and they're like, you know, something's going on, you know, with my hamstring, blah, blah. I see them in full splits. Warm up the body at the beginning, especially the spine, which we'll talk a little bit more about practically in your experience. Consider similar dynamic movements before holding pose. Talk a little bit about that and experience that. When we're really talking about working dynamically with certain postures before you hold them statically, what I want you to consider is the directions of mobility of your spine. Right? So there's forward folding, right? flexion, extension, side stretching, and twisting. I do lot would also say that there's extension and compression. We don't really ever do compression. He actually does practice on Jalapa for my teachers in Ukraine. He actually would work with compression in some other joints. I don't typically, unless I'm working with people individually, but for specific reasons. But it is ultimately a direction of mobility, right? They're subtle, but you can work with compression and extension. But mostly you work with those those four twisting and side stretching both directions, right? So you can consider that. That's really what we're going to focus on when we're doing more practical stuff. Compensation or counter poses, considering how do you 
right? Everything's kind of like a positive and negative effect, right? Not good and bad, but positive and negative. So there's pros and counter poses, and you'll get some general cues on, on, on how to work with um, bringing compensation into your body. Um, and then making sure that counter pose is less intense than main pose. We touched on this, I mean, uh, you know, just in the sense that that is what it is. If you're doing a really deep forward fold, let's say Kormasana, tortoise pose, you're not going to go into Urdhvadhanarasana or fold pose, some people call it inverted pose, some people call it wheel. The idea is that when you're bringing compensation to the body, it's probably about maybe half the intensity of what you were just coming out of. Right? So it's simpler, it's more accessible, it's gentler. Right? And then whatever direction of mobility that you've worked on the most, you probably want to do at least a quarter. If you did six poses that focused on extension, you're going to probably want to do at least two or three, uh, at least two poses that are compensated. So. Do you, when you pose and counterpose, do you do like three of one and three of the counterpose, or do one after another? Does it matter? That's a, it's a really good question. You want to stay with one direction of mobility if you're working toward a more complicated pose. So if I wanted to go into full wheel or further down our asana, so bring you which pose I'm talking about, just shake your head. Okay? So the deeper back bend. I'm not going to go into bow pose and then go into child's pose and then go into urban dials. Because if you think about it, like you take a paper clip, bend it, bend it, bend it, keep doing that, snaps. Right? You just, it gets overworked. So you don't want to go in and out, in and out, in and out. You want to stay pretty consistent and develop strong habits, strong components of what an extension is, lengthening the spine, broadening the collarbone, stabilizing the navel cultivating those components of that direction of mobility. Then you work yourself out slowly on the compensation. We also practice like when we're warming up, we'll do multiple directions of mobility and wake the spine up. So we want to start kind of getting all those directions of mobility and all the joints first, and then we go into more uh, one direction mobility at a time. There might be subtle components, like if we're in warrior one, there's a slight extension, and then we might go into a forward fold like parsley from there. But again, those are kind of like what we're talking about up here, where you want to work with the directions of mobility in a more subtle way, right, or in a less intense way before you start going into the deeper postures. And that's just allowing the body to be more prepared. Especially if you're doing a morning practice and you're feeling a little stiff in the morning, doing a supportive pose, you know, we're lying in Sutrabhadakanasana where there's a slight extension, and then you go into an active pose like Shalabhasana, locust pose, and then you go into, you know, like a other back then like cobra, you know, because then you're really getting the muscles, you're coaxing them by your romance in your body, and that's kind of like what it is. You know, with the postures in general, you know, I, I say this in class, you know, kind of jokingly, but I'm kind of serious, where it's like, every pose, right, is like a relationship. The first time you see it, most of us are far beyond, you know, most of the postures we're familiar with, or at least, uh, I would say most, but you know, a lot of these are postures. Somebody on the street. Just like you might find a queue or something, you're like, hey, what's going on? You know, you see like a coffee shop the next time, you're standing in the line behind them, and you're like, oh, there they are again, you know? You, and then next thing you know, you know, you drop your key, you pick it up, you'll give you a key. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
like, oh, okay, well, uh, nice to see you. Maybe I'll see you around again, you know. And then you start meeting at the same time, because you know they're going to be there, right? And you're like, oh, that person's going to be in the coffee shop. You don't want coffee. You just go there and see the person. And then you just start having a conversation with them, right? And you get to know them better and better and better. And then next thing you know, there's a really intimate relationship and a bond there. And then that's when you start finding more ease, more comfortability in the pose. And then you start yelling at them for hanging their towel on the door. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to protect. But that's the idea with every posture. So when you're cultivating your own practice and you're coming up with the poses that also you want to plug in to your practice, right? Consider that. And consider the ones that you want to create a more intimate relationship with because if you're doing those regularly, that's exactly what's going to happen. So don't just pick the postures that are come easy and that are comfortable. But pick the poses that they have an opportunity for you to create stronger bond with. Because oftentimes I find that those are the ones that have the most lessons for me and are sometimes the most beneficial for me. Sometimes the posture will kind of make me feel uncomfortable or they'll start getting into my, you know, like my chest in a different way and I'll want to cry or be doing a forward fold and something like this feels different in my hips. And I have a choice. I can embrace it and you know, be with that feeling, kind of continue that relationship. Because all relationships aren't breezy. There's always some compromises and, and um, you know communication that has to happen. Right? But once you get through that, you're you're, you're better for it. Right? The relationship is stronger. So consider that when you're when you're plugging in poses. You don't put in a bunch of poses that you have an aversion to, but then you'll give every excuse right, to, not to do your practice. But one or two, maybe three. As teachers, Angelopo said, <laughs> your students should not be able to do three quarters of the class. <laughs> I think maybe about one quarter is like a bigger size is pretty kind of pushy it. Like, but he, he thinks that you should not, like, your students should not do three quarters of the class. So, you, said, so you're saying that you should be struggling for three quarters of the class. He like, said, like, yes. <laughs> this is how you move off. So how you level off. Let's just start with two or three poses that are a little challenging. Yes. At some point, I'm going to learn how to break the intensity of the poses because I think that's one of the things I go with, uh-huh. especially like forward falls. I think like I cannot tell what's more intense than what. Well, that is really an individual experience for people because for some people forward folds aren't a lot of forward folds aren't intense mm-hmm. for for people at all, and it's going to depend on where your constriction lies the most. So standing forward folds might be more challenging for you because your lower back is, is, is more constricted. And so by you managing your body weight going down against gravity, it's really tough on your lower back, so there's resistance. But for somebody else who might have tighter hamstrings, seated forward folds are challenging because the hips and the legs are more fixed. 
they can't move their hips back. If I'm here, I can do a little cheating cheating and do different things with my legs. I move my hips and my knees. If my legs are flat on the ground and my hips are fixed, not so much. Still lower backs up, but it might feel more challenging for me to see the posture. So it is, it, to grade them, I mean, you're your own teacher. I'm going to talk a little bit about that when we do the practical portion of it, but it's really so you're going you're gonna to figure it out. Okay. But it, it, it's a, it's a, I think it's a good question, it's a valid point, because when you're cultivating a sequence, you kind of need to know where to start, and the way we'll break it down is directions of mobility of the spine, and also positioning of the body in space. So it goes on from the first and the second page. We're going to talk a little bit about this framework. Now, you know, my classes, maybe Jim's classes, don't always follow this framework. Like if you took my class today, they didn't follow this framework, but you know, we still brought compensation into the body. It was just in a different way. Now, for those of you that are more adept, it may feel more comfortable practicing on your own and creating sequences and things like that. You might not follow this, but I just I want you to have some sort of basic framework in terms of the anatomy of the body. So you have your standing postures. Right? And this is a little bit more when we're talking about the body of the bus. And then we have spine poses on the back, inverted poses, you're practicing inverted poses that day, and then prone, and then kneeling, seated. Kneeling and seated, I kind of feel it can blend together personally, but there are two different positions that you have in your body. And this is what we tend to focus on a little bit more when we're talking about sequences. We're talking about one posture after another. We're talking a little bit about this. In general, what we're talking about is the creating intention. Our whole practice involves warming up the prostrations, and then the body. Finishing postures can be somewhere in here. Finishing postures, I feel, are just a little bit different than compensation poses, but they can be a part of finishing postures. Um, finishing postures, to me, is taking those one to two postures that you feel is going to wrap it up. You know what I'm saying? It could be a simple twist. It could be, how you want to call it? Like the happy baby pose. Anything like that. You know, we're rocking from side to side, doing dynamic bridge. Anything like that, that just make sure that your spine is in well. And in particular, that the upper back around the cervical spine and the lower back around the lumbar spine is as relaxed and at ease as possible. It's those two areas of your spine that are associated with parasympathetic nervous system. And that's part of your nervous system that's referred to as your rest and digest. The thoracic spine is associated with the sympathetic nervous system, fight and flight, which is usually what we're in all the time. Forward. That's how we kind of live our lives a lot of times. Jumping. Gotta do this, gotta do that. Where are the keys? Gotta go. It's like, 
before Shavasana, before resting pose, where I make sure those two areas of spine in particular, the whole spine is softened, but if you can really tap into those and get those muscles nice and relaxed. You were saying the here and then the lower back? Lumbar, yeah. So, yeah. Really make sure those areas are nice and you stop and completely you want the whole spine, but I feel like if you work with those two areas of your spine before Shavasana, it's um, you have more rest. So finishing poses, um, then resting pose. Always make sure you take some sort of a resting position. Breath work. So, our whole practice entails this. And it seems like a lot to fit in to, let's say, we're in, say, around 20 minutes. But you can do it, right? How you're going to do it is because you're going to have your practice to go to, and it's going to be efficient. So, you're going to know what's coming next. First time you practice it, it might take a half hour, it might take a little bit longer because you're learning it. But once you learn it, you know, and you can go through it mindfully and, you know, without having to intellectualize it and you know what's next, you're comfortable and confident with the poses and the sequence, you'll be great in 20 minutes. Yeah, the way that we'll design it. Will you be meditating for 20 minutes? No. Will you be meditating for five minutes? Pranayama? Depending on what type of pranayama you do. The 12 rounds is usually pretty sufficient if you're doing like alternate nostril breathing to get the effects of alternate nostril breathing. And what I recommend is on the days that you have more time and you want to put more time into your meditation or asana practice, be specific about those days and know that those are the days that you're going to do it. But in my opinion, when I get a free day, like, oh, my private cancel or something, I'm like, oh, I have the mornings to myself. I'm going to practice extra long today. What happens is it throws my routine off. Right? And so I can practice longer, and sometimes I do, maybe by five minutes or ten minutes or something like that. But I don't create this big, long practice because there's something about that for me that just throws my routine off. And then the next week feels weird. Just just stay with your routine. If you have particular days that you can take a little bit more time with meditation or pranayama, I would say put it into those two. Right? If you're going to do something longer, put it into these two. Meditation and pranayama. If you're going to only do something, meditation you're only going to do something you need to do every day for some of us it's hard to sit and still our minds without the house without removing our bodies moving through this. but if it's in the morning you're a little bit more quiet you're energetically less pulled out in different places but the pranayama will get you there so you might take on a little bit more of uh, a, a vigorous uh, more specific pranayama like Palavati that's going to arrest the thoughts. Palavati, I mean, it can aggravate Vata if you're doing it excessively, but it's still okay if you're Vata predominant. But Palavati really has an effect of arresting the thoughts. 
you add an internal breath retention with that, and focus on the navel, you're familiar with the bandhas, you can work with the bandhas. If not, just take a deep breath in, follow Bhati, close the eyes, engage the navel a little bit, drop the chin, and just focus on the navel. That will be a little bit more balancing for that. Just taking a simple practice like that before meditation is going to be beneficial for you. Otherwise, you can just you know, get out of bed, slash the cold water on the face, and then get sick. You're going to be like, I'm hungry, I want breakfast, I'm going to have a partner sitting, the dog's not at the door, I want a dog, I'm walking the dog to it. You know, like, you got to arrest the thoughts first. I think the follow up is a pretty, pretty strong practice to do that. Also, not so reading other practices are also um, powerful, but well, that is known for 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 I had um, all my ten greatest hits. So when you're starting to cultivate your practice, um, these are my ten greatest hits for asanas. First one is plank pose, and like these ten greatest hits, because I think that they affect your body in multiple ways. I'll still say it in English. Chair pose, or fierce pose, but that's technical. But the real translation is Utkatasana. Tree pose, triangle, locus, cobra, supine twist. Supported inversion, like legs up against the wall, you can set a bolster or a couple of blankets under the hips and take the legs up. Or if you're comfortable with the Greek Karani position, you can do the Karani, you can hold yourself up uncomfortably, but otherwise you have the hips supported on the block or something. The position of the Karani is actually like a shoulder stand, but there's flexion at the head. So your legs are going straight up. So it's less intense on the upper back of the head. And then corpse pose. So you can see it's getting directions of mobility, it's getting different joints, it's getting joints in different directions. There's a lot, you know. Now, if you have certain conditions to your body that you feel like cobra isn't appropriate for you, or chair pose isn't appropriate for you for whatever reason, because of a physical niche, don't practice it. You know what I'm saying? Like this is just like a pretty general thing, but you still have to really pay attention to what we talked about originally, which is where you're at today. Like, what is your body? What are my needs today? What do I want to get out of my practice short term? What do I want to get out of my practice long term? What are the effects that I want to do? You want to do plant post or anything plant? That will get you heated up for a downward facing dog. You can do that maybe dynamically. Then you go to a standing position, chair pose, that gets you heated up. Tree pose, triangle pose, because you're doing an external rotation. Then you down the floor, go this pose, that's great for cobra, and it's a fine twist, gives you compensation. Yeah, it's a long version of course. pose. <laughs> Sense. <laughs> Don't steal it, you're making your own. Yeah. <laughs> in general, is it more important that it's practice at the same time of the day or the morning specifically, or is it more important that it's practice that you wake up? So, awesome question. When? So, the ideal. This is the ideal. It's a great question. And ideally, you are practicing at sunrise or sunset because there's what they call the golden hour where the ions 
in the air. I don't know much about that scientifically. I know the effects that it's had on me when I've been able to really focus on my own practice and practice at Sunrise. It's a very empowering, very uplifting experience. It, it definitely is, is different. And so ideally, during that golden hour where the sun is rising or the sun is setting, it's the ideal time practice. In general, therefore, you're practicing at the same time. We have weird fallback and forward. I mean, that sets you up so you're practicing at the same time. Otherwise, us that live in this world, um, <laughs> ideally, would practice at the same time and in the same place. Because just like you create a relationship and a dynamic with each posture and each pranayama that you do, or vibration in the same place and at that same time. So in terms of like the way that your biorhythms are affected and the way that your cellular memory are affected, you'll be able to go deeper, quicker, not deeper in splits, but deeper internally in your practice if you can do that. Because you're going to create a vibration that supports that. Your body and your mind will know that it be supported by the dynamic and the vibration that you're setting up. So from a more energetic standpoint, those are the benefits of doing that. The other thing is, if you're not able to practice at the same time or at the same in the same place, not all of us have like a little yoga area and uh, an altar set up. It's ideal if you have some sort of specific space um, that you can have a little bit more reverence because it will get the dynamic. If you're not able to, I think it's a good idea to do one of two things. One, Use some sort of an essential oil and smell that essential oil every time before you practice. Because the olfactory nerves is one of the strongest effects that you can have in your body. It's like when you smell like apple pie, it makes you, maybe it takes you right back to like your grandma or somebody. I mean, my grandma never made apple pie, but that's the idea is that your mind will go right there and it's going to know that you're going to be doing a practice. Doing meditation, maybe doing kind of idea is that some people will use a shawl, something during meditation, using the same shawl or prayer reads or something like that every day. That will also carry the vibration of what you're of, of what you're doing when you're wearing that shawl or what you're doing when you're wearing those beads or using those prayer beads for a mantra. I'll talk a little bit about mantra when we get into meditation. The third thing is is start to practice the same way. So if you notice in my classes, typically we always start seated and we always start yamamitra. Again, the more that you practice these subtle things, the more empowered they become. The more sensitive you become to their effects. So it doesn't matter if yana mudra, anjali mudra, yana mudra. You've got things to choose from, but just stick with what you know and what you practice the most. That's I dig a lot of the information out there about uh, mudras and, and, and things like that. And so I practice different mudras and I, I'll do different mudras for different effects. But you'll notice with me, I stick with about three or four of them because those are the ones that I practice the most. And then from a teacher's standpoint, because I practice them, I'm teaching them to you, I give you the power of those mantras. So every time I practice a mantra or a mudra or an asana, and I teach it to you, you get the power that I've created from that mantra, from 
that awesome. That's that's the way it works from from teacher to student. Personal meditation practice. Don't let go of your meditation practice. But in terms of asana, and you know, pranayama, you might have to do some pranayama before meditation, but always have your own personal meditation practice. So when you're practicing, it's ideal to face east or northeast, and the, the most auspicious place for an altar is in the northeast corner. Is considered to be more auspicious and revered more, and it is associated with the deity of the house. So it's an Indian reason, and it's an energetic reason. Holy yoga breathing, my three part holy yoga breathing starts in the abdomen, and then purification, also breathing, and then clavicle breathing. And that's the, that's the breathing technique that I refer to the most. And I think it's the most effective. Most of us are already chest breathers, right? We're in that thoracic body, that thoracic spine. When we're stressed out, abdominal breathing is more You can get breath down there first and foremost. It's going to be, in general, more calming for the nervous system. So I follow more. But each asana, you know, has an effect on the breathing pattern. If you're in a twist, it's going to be more difficult to do abdominal breathing. If you're in an inversion, because there's pressure on the diaphragm, also from the abdominal organs, it's going to be easier to exhale. The pressure is going to push the diaphragm up, and it's going to be easier to exhale than it is to inhale. So you're going to be doing, in general, more chest breathing in an inversion. So the asana practice is going to affect your breathing. But in general, in a regulated state, three-part breathing is tight and Exhale, in terms of length. Uh, yeah, it's, it's looser, but in reverse order you'll feel that. So at the very end of the exhalation, you'll feel it will draw back towards the spine a little bit. And then you'll know that you've exhausted really all the breath out. And you can draw the lower belly in, then you kind of empty yourself out. So in reverse order, it's a little looser than that. You can easily. Start exhaling, it's kind of not possible. It's kind of hard, but keep that expanded and then because of the movement of the back. So, you does that make sense? Yeah, it's a little looser, but in general, you kind of still fall at the same time. All right, let's start in child's pose. We're going to focus on the warming up. Focus on the warming up. We're going to break down the practice. We're going to focus on the warming up section first. Actually, we'll focus on the intention. So, in child's pose, while you're here, take a few breaths and focus on your intention. Doesn't even have to be directly related to your asana. But your asana practice, because of the effects, the benefits of the poses and the breathing, are going to bring you into a more concentrated, more aware state, which will then in turn support your intention. Support your intention. No matter what the intention is, your asana practice will support you. 
Just taking maybe two or three more full breaths. Inhaling, filling the space, exhaling, creating space. Shoulders directly over the wrists, knees directly under the hips. Wake up the spine, cat cow stretch. Inhale, tailbone, chest, and head up. Exhale, rounding the back, tailbone, head taps under. Head relaxes down toward collarbones. Now, while you're practicing cat cow stretch, Take responsibility for the modifications that you know are beneficial for you. You hyperextend in the lower back. Do you need more engagement to the navel because of that? Do you carry more tension in the upper back? Make sure the head stays heavy on an exhalation until the very beginning of your inhalation so that tension is released. These are the things that you want to consider to cultivate a personal practice. This is your opportunity to work on the things that you know your body and your mind needs. From there, go into full plank pose. Shoulders directly over the wrists. Full plank pose is not appropriate for you. Then you stay supported on the knees, but take the knees back a little bit further than the hips. So you're still getting some upper body strengthening and engaging these deeper core muscles in your body so that you're coming from a space that's deep within you. Superficial muscles are engaged, but you're allowing these deeper core muscles to start participating in all of your movement and static postures. Downward facing dog is next. If downward facing dog is inappropriate for you or you have a variation of downward facing Take it now. This is your opportunity. You're already starting to cultivate your own practice here. Already starting to do it. I'll give you time to write stuff down, but right now, we're going to be a little more practical. Next, inhalation. Come into full plank pose or all fours. Next, exhale. Go back into child pose. Knees down, step foot here. Now we start some dynamic. Inhale, all fours. Exhale, downward facing dog. Simple frustration, really, considering continue between those three postures. Plank for all fours, child's pose, and downward facing dog. It's a pretty simple way to warm up all the joints, the wrists, the ankles, the knees, a little bit of the elbow, shoulders, and hips but also affecting the spine. So you can download cat cow. Warmed up the spine, now we're getting into a little bit deeper work with the spine. And then we'll add one more element and one more direction of mobility with the spine, which is a back so from child pose, you'll lift the belly off the thighs, hips off the heels, and lift up and lean back. And as you exhale, you'll slow the lower back down in child's pose, taking the hips back toward your heels, bring the palms down to be more support to the lower back. Inhale all fours, exhale downward facing dog. Now continue that movement. 
Now, if you're practicing on the forearms, you're practicing on the forearms, so doing this dynamically might not make sense to you. Too jerky and it doesn't feel like. So take a couple breaths in each posture set, that way you're still getting some dynamic movement, or take one of the postures out. Maybe you're just going from child's pose into camel variation and back and forth between those two. Make it up so that it makes sense to you. But you're still working with the spine and warming the joints up. And then we'll all meet back up in child pose. Taking a resting breath or two in between the, you know, right at the junction, right, as you move from one thing to the next or one short set postures to the next is really, I think, a great way to integrate, checking with the breathing pattern. Sit back on the heels or any comfortable seated position. So, just for those that have some wrist issues, instead of going into what you just went into, you might go into exhaling here, inhaling up, exhale here, inhaling up. That might be your repetitious movement, right? Or if you are practicing on the forearms, downward facing dog, standing here, inhale here, exhale here. Here, exhale here. Right? So you're splitting it up or breaking it up instead of like moving, shifting. Right? You want some fluidity in there. Right? So if by chance any of you that have mobility now, and that happens where your wrists start getting worn out, it's not appropriate for you. Don't Right? You're going to be creative. There's ways that you're going to start thinking where it's like, okay, I, need, I want to warm up my joints, or affect the spine. What are three or four postures that I can link together? You want to do more side stretching because that's effective for you. Dynamic gate pose. Exhaling down, inhaling up. You can get a block on the other side. Exhaling down. Right? So there's lots of things that you can create from a static posture and string some things together or make it dynamic. Right? So start thinking that way, but at first you just want something pretty pretty simple and pretty basic and then a lot to evolve. From your standing position next. Most of you have done this meet with me uh, in one of my classes, but I think it's a really great way to have something be a little bit more vigorous, the standing position, and I think it has more strength in your components uh, than the one we just did, right? So the Utskutasana prostration uh, uh, posture. And the idea of taking your head below your hips and above your hips here repetitiously is a little bit more um, pronounced. Just has a, an effect on the brain, quite an effect on the brain. So take the palms straight up to the midline as you inhale. Exhale, forward fold. Let's sweep the arms forward since we're close to our neighbors. Shoot down your knees here, or come down halfway to the lower back. Inhale, coming up, sweep the arms forward. Lean back a little bit. And then palms down the midline, sink the hips, keep the lift in the chest, stay with your heels. Inhale, coming up. Exhale, forward fold. And then continue. Every time you go in or out of the forward fold, 
arms sweep forward or to the side. Every time you exhale into Utkatasana, inhale out of Utkatasana, the palms go up the midline. There's a little bit of an energetic effect in terms of expansion and contraction there with the arms over the top. You have lower back issues, and dynamic work holding is not available to you. Make something else up. Utkatasana, going up, side stretching. Center, up the other side, or something that you feel is beneficial for you. Sometimes just going to the test, coming up, lifting the side of the body, down. So you're strengthening the lower back and the navel. Make things up that are effective for you. Again, just linking together three, four, five postures that get heat generated and warm the joints and spine. What you're after. Last round there. And stay in some steep to keep on the front of the chest. Now, this kind of answers your question about grade levels, all you have to do, right? So, from simple to a little more complicated, a little more challenging, a little bit more heating, to something even more complicated, something that's going to be more heat, something that you can even expand on more by adding different directions of mobility to, like a moon salutation, right? Like some people refer to as a classic sun salutation. So, palms go straight up as you inhale, four fold as you exhale, take the left foot back into a lunge, bring the knee down, keep the arms up, lunge and crescent move, bring the palms down, downward facing dog as you exhale, inhale, full plank pose, exhale, lower down, Ashtangasana Chaturanga, cobra as you inhale, Downward facing dog as you exhale. One full breath there. Right leg lifts up, inhale. Take it forward into a lunge, exhale. Knee down, arms up, lunge, press the knee, inhale. Head forward, fold, left forward, exhale. Breath is connected with the knee. Inhale up, knee back. Second side, forward fold on your exhalation. Draw the navel back in here. Mind forward, left foot goes back to the side. Knee down, arms up, full breath in. Downward facing dog to the exhale. Inhale, full plank pose. Exhale, lower down. Cobra. Downward facing dog. One full breath. Left leg lifts up and sweep it into a lunge. Knee down, arms up. And forward fold as you exhale. Inhale all the way up and knee back again in equal stand push. Burning starting to feel shifts, right? Body's starting to go warm up, maybe 
have to practice every day is your first movement maybe. But the idea is that one, it's gonna get you into a more conditioned state of mind, right? Connecting to the breath, staying mindful of the movement. Okay? And the second thing is it's gonna physically get your joints and your spine warmed up. Now it's gonna be different for everyone, right? It might be similar components, but if you have lower back issues, if you have wrist issues, right, if you need a more simple warming up, right, because you, you need to de-stress, right, you need to be more motivated, if you need more vigorous warming up, because you feel a little stagnant, you need more heat in the body, that's going to change your choices, that's going to change your decision. Does that all make sense? Alright, so now, on a piece of paper, write down what you want your warming up portion of the practice. You're going to have a starting point. This is your starting point. Right? When you start practicing it, you might make some changes. It's okay. It's your training. You're not looking to nail it right now. You can combine all three for all four. Start on the floor and start doing the wound salutation. You can take, take that full sequence as you want. That's a little long for training practice. But you can start with cat cow and end up with the moon salutation with the twist. If you want to. Because the cat cow is what you call cat cow? Cat cow stretch. Cat cow. Into, you know, plank cow facing dog. Um, I wish I could think of a clever name for that. I, I think Jim thought of But, you know, the whole movement of inhaling coming up on the knees and then child's pose again. Official from just going to plank, just down dog with the child's pose. Just do that. Downward facing dog, child's pose. Downward facing dog, child's pose. Yeah. 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 If you have a difficult time remembering more complicated sequences, keep it simple. Simple is better because you're going to do it more often. Just do more repetitions of things. You know what I'm saying? Like, more complicated sequences take a longer time. Simple sequences take a shorter time, so it allows you to do more repetition. Right? You go from downward facing dog, front into the child's pose. That plank is like your middle hand. Plank is your middle hand. Downward facing dog and child's pose are looking on the top. And you know some of these sequences and stuff, you have you, you do it in class, so you're you're really familiar with them. And some of you that have already taken my twelve class class and are taking this class and are taking the teacher training, they're gonna be really tired of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not tired of my voice. <laughs> Good, right? Easy peasy. If you only did that, if you only did whatever your warm up exercise was, it's better than nothing. The most. Shake it up, leave it five minutes. Now we start getting into the body of the posture. What I want you to think of, and again, this is going to be you assessing the grade level or the difficulty of postures, but again, I want you to have, I want you to think of the ingredients that you want to put in your dish, or the ingredients you want to put in your dish that belong to the body, the bulk of your practice here. Consider a standing posture. Consider a standing posture and consider the direction of mobility that you're working with. Is it Uttanasana? You're warmed up now. Think of a posture that's accessible for you. Is it Uttanasana? Hold, hold. Are you working with Uttanasana aesthetically? What does your body need? 
Okay. What do you feel like you want to get out of your practice? This is where you start considering those questions. What do I want to get? I typically need a more box pacifying practice, which means I need to think about grounding, stabilization, and concentration. The general things you can consider if you're using Vajapit and Papa as part of your practice. Vata, I was thinking about this too. So some really easy things you can go to. Slow, deliberate, rhythmic, static, stable. Deliberate movement, slow movement, some static postures, postures that are going to think they're going to create more stability, think balancing poses, slow and mindful movement. Yes? Movement is good for practice. You have to have some stable and static qualities to the practice. You have to have some. Otherwise, if it's all dynamic movement, it will activate power. You need to have some stable qualities so it balances the mobile quality. Right? You get a little bit more of this in my Living in Harmony series. Um, Living in Harmony with Nature series. So I can't spend too much time on it because there's a time allotted. But that's why I'm just giving you keywords. You know, when you're thinking of postures, or balancing postures, postures or movement that's going to give you more slow, rhythmic movement, static, tree, utkatasana, any kind of balancing posture um, might be a good one to start off with, right? If you need more stable quality, right? It might be balancing posture, utkatasana, one-legged utkatasana, right? Uh, it, there needs to be a little bigger to it when I balance the heat. So it doesn't like, you don't want it to be too vigorous, but it needs to be challenging enough. Otherwise, the predominant people are going to be bored and they're not going to want to do the practice. So it needs to be inventive and it needs to have a little bit of vigor. So a little bit of movement, a little bit challenging, but nothing too aggressive because then they'll get competitive with themselves. <laughs> and one of the things for Pitta in general, Free breath. It does always try to control things. Just let your breath be free. Hit the people. With pitta, with movements, I focus on pose and counter pose. So one of your warm-up motions might be lunging windmills. So the idea, you're getting pose and counter pose with the other ones, essentially, because you're, you're going into a back bend into a forward fold. But any kind of compression on the navel is good for pitta. Back bend, forward fold, flexion the spine, extension the spine. Any kind of compression, stretching, compression, stretching of the navel is really balancing for pitta dosha. Also, think twists. Forward folds for vata, twists for pitta. So think about inventive postures, maybe doing some sort of modification. Again, you know, it, for you it might be really more specific because you have a specific condition that you're working on, right? If you're trying to heal sciatica, no matter what your constitution is, you're not going to do dynamic forward folds and focus on forward folds. You're just not. You're going to focus on strengthening the abdominal area. Right? You're going to start focusing on things like utkatasana, the variation of gentle back bending, strengthening the lower back. So these are all things that you're going to consider in the body of your practice. Most of you are practicing long enough in a class where you talk to a teacher that you're that are contraindicated. Alright. Papa. Think ex expansive. Sensation of arms up, 
uplifting, expansive practice, getting the energy moving. Might be a little bit more strengthening or vigorous. Think strengthening postures. You need to make the postures a little bit more challenging for kapha predominant people, or if there's a kapha in that because kapha predominant people, maybe it's in warrior, maybe it's in warrior too, the cows come up. And if you say that stable quality, they'll just sit there and won't break a sweat. So you need to do variations of warrior two, you need to make things more challenging, or from warrior two go into artich and dress. Found the person do artich dress and their balance is usually there. But stamina and balance and posture is sometimes enough to make it more challenging to make them work a little harder. They need to make it a little bit more challenging, a little bit more strengthening. Think purification. Purification, you might within your own practice add things like Uriyanabanta practice or Agnisara. You can start doing, I think also purification of the mind for confident individuals if there's a confident imbalance or if anybody has any kind of Emotional resolution that needs to happen, longer exhalations, and even exhaling through the mouth can be really effective for copper predominant people. Like a sigh. Lion's breath, you could add. Yeah, good. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. Let it be a little bit of an organic process, cultivating it, but we're going to give you a template, we're going to give you a place to start. Yeah, it's a longer exhalation. We can also get into when we start talking about breath work, right? More heating breaths, more breaths that are appropriate for kapha, the rabatha. Where would you normally see that? Where there's an elongation of exhalation naturally occurring and a shortening of the breath. Where, where would that be in, in the doshas? How's that work in a rabatha person? Yeah, it could, it, could, it could be that there's also a vata imbalance, but sometimes with kapha predominant people, or if kapha is in balance, there's so much kind of pressure in the body, and when you're talking about the lung system, the diaphragm muscle has to move down, right? And if there's a lot of weight that people are carrying, and there's just, it, it's kind of, there's pressure in the body, so it's just not allowing the diaphragm muscle to, to draw itself, to draw down far enough, so the lung system works. So basically, it's like a vacuum, right? It's not allowing stops. Right? So <clears throat> expansion of the rib cage, exercises, side stretches, back bends. That's why back bending is such a you know a profound direction mobility to work with the coffers because opening up the main center of coffers for yoga is the lungs. For therapeutic reasons it's stuck, but it's the lungs. So it's actually not necessarily a lot of thing. It's a coffin. But it's because there's so much either congestion in the lung system, right? Or there's just so much pressure in the body because we add weight that the body just doesn't feel like it can take a deep enough breath in. Because there's so much pressure internally, the exhalation is easy because it's pushing things more things out. So it's still a tougher thing. But that's why it's focusing on the lungs and focusing on expanding the root cage to the top. No, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm getting confused in terms of the, because uh, like, Bata is more of the person like, who goes, you know, one to one, like, not really able to stabilize one thing, right? In uh -huh. terms of the uh, Ayurveda. 
but like I feel like looking at the exercise, like that is some that is like something that kind of lowers on the back quality. But like for pita and kapha, it's more like kind of motivating the pita and kapha like, uh, quality. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, that's a movement like flowing and deliberate, uh-huh. you know, stable, which means kind of pushing down the back quality. Mm-hmm. But like with pita exercise like vigorous inventive and like it's kind of like pushing up the pizza quality yeah not necessarily push it up as much as you're looking to, to balance the natural qualities of pizza right which is pizza the pizza mind is methodical it's it needs to be entertained in an intellectual way, oftentimes. So you need to make the practice somewhat inventive. Otherwise, it's going to be kind of boring for the pitta individual. If there's a pitta imbalance, when, you know, you're focusing on gentle twists, so you're focusing on the main side of pitta dosha. So that's going to balance the heat in the body. Right? Just enough bigger so that you're creating movement and compression, like I said, pose and counter pose. Those are going to be the practices that are going to fit the balance to direction, right? If there's an imbalance. What you're doing is you're taking the heat home. And you've got heat in your body, right? If there's already a fit imbalance or you're fit predominant. Heat that how you manage it is through gentle twists, bringing a little bit of free movement, allowing movement, not being so controlling. And then being inventive in the practice so that the mind cools down to feeling what it needs. Feeling what it needs in a productive way. Not trying to control things, not trying to, you know, be too, in, you know, intellectual about things, letting things be a little bit more free. That's because of their serious. Alright? And then with the pop up, the ex- expanding, strengthening, right? These are all things that are going to make Right, and then work. They, they need to work. They need to work. So, strengthening postures, challenging postures, expansive postures, purification postures, that's all going to balance Whether there's an imbalance or whether that's been their nature. There's more things specifically that we talk about in the other workshops that are specific for profit imbalances. I give you some general things that will affect either one, whether you're about to dominant or if there's a pop imbalance. There's some general things, but not as extreme. So it seems like they might aggravate pata, but it's really addressing the nature of pata and giving that predominant pata to pop person what they're going to need. Write down one standing posture with some information that you have now, maybe, or just something that you know is going to be good for you. One posture on your back, one inverted posture, supine is on the back. Yeah. So think, supine is on the side. Okay. So one, and think about the most accessible one. So you're starting off, starting off, most accessible. Because to me, when you're standing the back bend, one prone position, that's on the belly. Oh. If you got that one, you have to keep one for one, then the other one is. And then just do like one kneeling or one seated. You know, like Padrasana or Hashimoto or Janushrutasana. If you don't know any other things in Sanskrit, it's like knee pose, hold, hold on the hip, right? Padrasana sitting on the heels, Virasana in between the heels. You do a seated twist if you wanted to. Now, after you get those first poses, 
they don't even have to say that. You know, I mean, if you're up to that point where you want them to, you know, it comes easy for you, that's fine. But just think of the postures that are good for you, that are in line with what you want to create. There's some postures that you'd like to do, a couple postures that are challenging for you, maybe, or that you, know, you feel are good for you, but can be a hundred favorite postures. Does kitchen count as seating? Oh, good question. The postures before that inversion support that. Then we'll, then we'll get that. You're going to think more of this. These aren't the only postures you're going to do. But it's start, and we're going to go for things. <laughs> I would rather, if you're really shortening things up, because right, we're being mindful of the different directions of the mobility while we're writing down these poses, but if you're going to do just, let's say, four or five postures, right. I would have you focus more on the directions of mobility of your spine. You're getting more directions of mobility of the spine. So you're getting flexion, extension, side stretching, and twisting. Right. You're going to do four or five poses. Yeah, I think per practice, you know, this is where it's going to evolve and it's going to change. But there might be one, you know, posture per practice that you that you work on. It doesn't have to be two or three. Again, we're making a twenty-minute practice here, so if it's a more challenging pose, you know, you're going to set yourself up in a way that is, you know, supportive of working toward that pose. Right? And then at the same time, making sure that you're, you know, compensation for that post. So, you know, in a 20-minute practice, you know, if you focus on the different directions of mobility of the spine, use this as a little bit of a framework, right? And then put in that one or two, you know, one or one or two postures. That one or two posture might change, you know, as it evolves. But we're just starting you guys off, so just. You know, in terms of like working these other postures in, right, that might be more challenging for you, just allow that to happen. Just start off with something. You want to start off with some sort of template. Now, now that you have these postures, they're working with different directions of mobility, so maybe the prone postures, that's going to be a bad thing. So that lends itself to giving you compensation for most of the inversion, like shoulder stand, right, head stand, and or you do bridge pose on the floor to get the compensation. Right? So general compensation rules, right, is these are general, but it's going to be the opposite directional ability that you work with. Stick with that. Start off with compensation for flexion is going to be extension. And then compensation for extension is going to be flexion. Those are just two things that you can work with. The idea, and you have to think of the three uh, directions of mobility is fine. Into this a little more. So flexion, extension, right? Extension, flexion. Twisting both sides. Just one way, twist the other way. Stretch both sides, you stretch one way, stretch the other way. With the inversion, you have to consider what was going on with the spine. Such stand. Your one classic is shoulder stand or bridge pose. Um, compensation pose for that headstand <clears throat> or um, shoulder stand, cobra, 
They were just talking, now we're moving on to compensation. Because now you have all these poses. Extension. Yeah, extension, flexion. So back and forth. So extension for flexion, flexion for extension. Okay. Twisting, you're just making sure you twist on both sides. Side stretching, you want to make sure you stretch both sides. Inversion, consider what you're doing with the spine. Right? If your spine is in flexion, you're going to do extension with the cervical spine. If your spine is being supported all the way, you want to make sure that you do some sort of movement, either side stretching, flexion, sometimes half moon neck roll. You want to make sure that you lengthen. Because when we talked about compression of the spine, you want to do extension, right? lengthening of the spine from headstand. So you're considering what direction of mobility your spine was in in the inversion. Does that make sense? You're going to do compensation, which is the opposite direction of mobility, which we went over. Well, you're not putting any weight in your spine, right? And for that, you'll, in all inversions, and this is my next thing, for all inversions, you want to make sure that you either take child's pose or a seated meditating position. For more advanced practitioners, they can go into Tadasana. more advanced practitioners, you can go into Tadasana mountain pose. Helps to balance the apanavayu. To keep it simple, when in doubt, twist it up. Gentle twists. Okay, good. Supine, gentle twists. When in doubt, twist it up. The balancing. The balancer. Energetic properties of that. That's the balancer. So, with that being said, what you can start doing then with these postures is you can continue to build. You might not do two inversions, so that is out. That inversion is signed. But you might go ahead and add three more poses. Just three more poses and pick which one, which position, standing position, prone position, supine position. Take only three more postures and choose out of those categories what postures make the most sense for you. Do you need a more grounding practice? Do you need more stabilization in your practice? You might take three standing postures. You might take warrior one, then padottanasana, the wide angle forward fold, then triangle pose. Those might be your three standing postures because they're giving you what your body needs. So that means you might not do a prone, more than one prone, but you might not do more than one back bend. Because back bends aren't what your body needs the most of. So maybe cobra is the only back bend you do. You hold cobra for five breaths, that's your back bend, you're out. With a 20 minute practice, you have to condense some things and you, you have to make it efficient. You have to, you know, make the practice so that it's the most beneficial for you. What are the most beneficial poses for you to do that are balancing for you, that make the most sense that you feel you want to work on? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that next. Yep, the three, the three poses. We'll start finessing it next. Just three poses that you can do. 
can guarantee putting it all together won't be as challenging as you might think. If you uh, want to try to increase your uh, clarity of mind, or is there any um, substantiation to that inversions bring more blood to the brain or help? Sure. Yeah, inversions are great for the brain. Yeah. Anything on the back? You can do Fisipashimotanasana, where you're on your back and the legs are up and you've got a strap around the feet. Um, you can do a spine twist on your back. You can do a twist on your back. Um, you can do bridge pose on your back. You can do dynamic bridge on your back. You can do... And how do you say dynamic poses? I don't know. I don't know. You're going in and out of them. Oh, so there's either in or out of the same posture, right? So if you're in posture, passive, right? You do dynamic, inhaling, exhaling, which way. Which, if you're tight towards the posture that's challenging for you, doing it dynamically is actually more beneficial, right? So it's going to struggle, the repetition, and that is That would be a seat pose? Yeah. That can be dynamic pose and counter poses, dynamic bridge, you do dynamic twisting, exhaling down, inhaling up, exhaling down, inhaling up. So pose and counter pose. Twisting one side, let's notice the dynamic. So now we're going to finesse, right? So what makes the most sense is to do your warm up. Standing position. Put your standing positions together that make the most sense. Even if they don't make the most sense, your standing posture should be together where you're not going up and going down, going up and going down all the time, right? It's going to make the practice more efficient. So if I'm doing warrior one, prasthanasana, and padakasana, I probably, you know, not necessarily going to start here. And then going here, going here, we could. But this might set me up more because there's more expansion in my chest, lengthening, getting a little bit more length in the spine here with extension, and that might help me to keep more length and extension in parts of the and then this stretch going through both sides will lend itself to stretching even deeper once I go into podcast. Okay. So even if you don't work with that intelligence, but the idea that through your practice, you're going to feel it and you're going to figure it out. But even if you don't have that intelligence now, that's what I'm saying. Don't get too caught up in finessing it right now. You're going to figure it out because you're going to feel it in your body. And even if you did any of those three postures in any of those directions of mobility, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, like you're getting the poses in. And then then come down onto the back, and it kind of lends itself to then having taking us off the legs, right? So if you have one or two postures that are in standing position, once you're on the back, then all the weight gets taken off the legs, and it's a little bit more compensating for your hips and your legs, because now you're on your back, you're doing some sort of position where all the body weight isn't going through the legs. So then you do your supine pose or several of your supine postures. 
And then from there, I think what is helpful is once you, before you go into the inversion, you come back to the ground, there's more of this grounding sensation kind of connecting to the floor, and then you go upside down. Even though I don't follow this specific framework all the time, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a method in science too that I, I agree with. And then you go into your inversion, and then once you go into your inversion, you will put in some sort of like, you know, through each of these sections, you know, you're taking a breath or two, you know, to absorb. Remember when we talked at the beginning of class, some sort of like break or resting pose, just for like one or two breaths, as long as you need. Then you go into your back bends or a back bend, and then you go into your seated postures, and then from your seated postures. It's, you know, focusing on the hips more. So it's preparing you for a longer, more comfortable seated position for breath work and meditation. So you got about three to five minutes of warming up, and then the body of your posture, you know, the body of your practice might be, you know, the bulk of it, which might be about maybe ten minutes. Now again, when you practice it at first, it'll take a little bit longer once you get into the groove of it and you're taking maybe three to five breaths in each posture or you're doing things dynamically maybe three or five times. It'll take a few times to figure some stuff out. And then you go into Shavasana. With a 20 minute practice, you don't need a 10 minute Shavasana. (laughs) And that might be your practice. That might be what you need that day. So don't get too caught up in that you have to practice this every day. Again, the first question you're always asking yourself is, what do I need today? It might be a yoga ninja practice. Right? It might be 10 minutes of shavasana. It might be just breath work and meditation. It might not be physical movement. I know a lot of really powerfully, spiritually connected people that have never done triangle pose in their life. Right? So it is possible to be a yogi and not have an asana practice. Right? They're doing some movement. They're definitely doing things. But they might not know asana. I think you lose sight of that because you get so involved in, in asana. So maybe two minutes. Maybe 12, 20 breaths. You know, somewhere around there. What you need for shavasana. Take some deep breaths, long exhalation, go inside, observe, and absorb. But rest for at least one to two minutes. And then you come to a seated position. Make sure you're comfortable. Sit in a chair, right? Not a couch or somewhere that's you kind of like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're comfy, right? So comfy that you want to fall asleep or watch. TV and Doritos, but you want to make sure that you're um, that you're comfortable and the spine is long. Now with breath work, um, we talked a little bit about slow yogic breathing, right? Breathing in, expanding the navel, rib cage, the clavicle region, right? That's a pretty good breathing technique to start off with. Good for all doshas. It's not aggravating for any particular dosha. And this is what I want to give you first and foremost, just some really balancing ones. Alternate nostril breathing is another one. Samavriti, pranayama, so counting the breath to yourself and making the breath even is another one. 
those three are all really good, safe places to start. Right? If you're unfamiliar with the effects of particular breathing practices, just do those. And then as you learn more about specific breathing practices and the benefits of, and the contraindications of, then add those in. But those three are pretty safe and pretty effective. Now, if the mind is racing, you're familiar and you're comfortable with Kapalabhati, short, sharp exhalation, forcing out through the nostrils, navel relaxes, breath comes in naturally. That's a really effective breath to arrest the thoughts. Do 54 repetitions, take a break. You can inhale, keep the breath in, focus at the navel. Relax the navel, exhale, and then do 54 more repetitions. That's a good place to start. And all these practices can evolve, but I'm giving you a starting point. 54 repetitions, take a break, catch your breath, or use a little breath retention. 54 more repetitions. Two rounds, 54 repetitions each. Because Vata will get them zoned in, right? Stop them from wandering, you know, wondering about the scrapbook that they started last year. <laughs> And for coffee, we'll get them heated up and get them motivated and get um, the juice as well. When is 54 the magic number? 54 plus 54 is 180. 180. Uh, it's more of an auspicious number. Uh, what were the three breaths again? Alternate nostril breathing, polio breathing, and some of the same fluctuations of breath. Yeah, so you're counting the breath and making the inhale and exhale. Yep. Right. So, soul shining breath is to I'm cheap. Bees breath um, is a really great practice. Again, it will help you to go inside so it shuts the senses off, like off, but quiets the senses and draws the senses inward. And that's a really good practice for. Um, well, it's it's tri-dosha. It's not going to be aggravating to any dosha. I think it could be most beneficial for lots of individuals. So again, pick a breathing technique that is appropriate for you. Contraindications, just from what you know about doshas already. Think about the qualities. The rapid, fast breath. If it's done excessively, it's going to aggravate bhakta. A heating breath is going to aggravate pitta dosha. So it's papa. You know, you want something a little bit more of a vigorous breath or a little bit more of a heating breath. You don't necessarily, I mean, any of those first three that I said are going to be good for all doshas. They're going to be effective. Choosing one to practice every day and you are coffee predominant or there's a coffee imbalance, what might be more beneficial is the Palabhati or something like Pastrika if you're going to choose one. And this is what it's about. It's about you choosing what's appropriate for you. Now, with meditation, important, with the, um, go back to breath for just for a moment, because there's, on your sheet, there's energetic effects, there's prana and lagana, and one, you know, that just refers to whether there's an expanding breath, or a lightening, or a reducing breath. Right, so the Palavati, Vastrika, more rapid, more vigorous breathing is going to be lightening and reducing, which is what I was referring to just in other terms. I just wanted to make sure you understood what was on your sheet. Right, it's going to be better for Kapha, right? Brahmana, Brahmana is going to be more beneficial for Bhakti, right? Building, right? 
should be more like alternate nostril breathing, that slight internal breath retention. You're adding with the Palabhati, things like that can be more. The ratios, Samavriti, what we were talking about, balancing for all those shifts. The Vishma Vriti, right? It's just irregular breathing when we're talking about longer exhalations. Kapha for longer exhalations. Longer exhalations in general can be more calming and more resolving, right? So for Kapha, longer exhalations are positive because it helps to release emotion or kind of build up stress, right? So, um, but in general, uh, on a nervous system effect, it's going to be more calming for the nervous system. Longer exhalations are more calming for the nervous system. As far as building and expanding versus like, like inducing, which side of that does Pitta fall? Or which, which would you want to emphasize? Yeah, it's a good question. Usually, um, with Pitta individuals, they already have that high metabolism, and they're already in kind of like that lightning-reducing mode naturally. So you want, in general, more building. But they're kind of like that moderate, right? They're always like in between. So they're more moderate, right, in terms of their practices and how long the holes are, all that stuff. So they're kind of like that in between. But in general, because they already have that reducing, right, they have that high metabolism, strong digestion. They kind of already have that lightning thing going for them, that reducing thing naturally going for them. So you're going to lean more towards the expanding the building practices to make sure that they stay Uh, meditation, make sure that you're comfortable. First and foremost, the less physical distractions that you have, the more you're going to be able to go inward. Right? Less physical and external distractions that you have, the more you're going to go inward. Right? Clean space, limited distractions, limited sounds, ideally. Right? Practicing at the same time, ideally. Use some sort of a essential oil or shawl, the article of clothing, mantra beads. The one thing I'll say about mantra or the, about meditation is the more the mind raises, the more challenging it is for you to quiet the mind and the more challenging it is for you to sit in stillness, the more complicated your technique is going to have to be. You have to think about the senses that are involved in your meditation practice. So if your mind is really racing and it's difficult generally to concentrate, you're going to have to use something visually to look at. And sound, these are things you're going to consider when you're thinking about your meditation technique. You'll have something visually to look at, whether it's the sign of you know, the symbol of Aum or a picture of Jesus or a picture of your teacher from fifth grade. Like, have it be something a little more reverent and divine, but maybe your fifth grade teacher is very reverent and you know, divine to you. Um, right? You're also going to have, um, if you can, you know, take care of the vision if you want to close your eyes and work on visualization. Right? So you can imagine light passing through the nostrils, white light gold flux is kind of a general visualization that you can use for prana. 
down into the belly. Exhale, breath comes out of the nostrils. Right? So you can use visualization or external visualization. Internal visualization is more difficult. External visualization is obviously easier to start from where it makes sense for you. Listening to the breath. For the most part, with meditation, you're taking a natural breath. You're not controlling the breath, right? You're not doing ujjayi breathing. But at the beginning, the sound of your breath might be really important for you, and you need to do that soft ujjayi breathing so you actually hear the breath move through the throat and the nostrils. If that's effective for you, you use it. Eventually, you start letting things go. Right? But at the beginning, do what's effective for you. Right? Touch. Using maladies. 108 beats. And you can also use speech sound. Right? So you can use verbal mantra. Om, 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 there's a mantra for sound that you connect to personally. Use that and use the tactile sense right, to keep you focused. It's about concentration. You have to concentrate the mind before you meditate. Meditation happens spontaneously. Spontaneous experience. There's no concentration, there is no meditation. Meditation is absorption into whatever you're concentrating on. So eventually as you become, as you go from a more complicated version of your technique, keep going to the more subtle technique. So I'm using tactile, eventually I'm absorbing into the sound that I'm using, and eventually I'm using internal mantras. So I'm saying to myself, which ends up being a little bit more powerful in retrospect. Because um, you're not spending the energy talking, you're internalizing it. So it becomes more powerful internal mantra. The external mantra is not easier, but it's more effective to find the mind at first. So those are the things that you can basically add with this meditation that I gave you. These techniques, um, Jim practices in class. Um, the ajapa japa, right? Eventually, japa, which is the repetition of a sound over and over and over again, eventually becomes ajapa, which means from repeating it consciously, you ingrain it into the subconscious. And so, what you're saying over and over again actually is in the subconscious mind instead of the conscious mind. So it comes from japa to ajapa. And with this. This is the meditation practice that I teach and that I do myself, which is empty bowl meditation. Okay. So you can read that over. And with the so and um, that's the ajapa and japa. So you're repeating to yourself so on the inhalation and hum on the exhalation. And that's actually the sound of the vibration that's innate within the breath. So you're inhaling the sound of so and exhaling the sound of hum. You're saying that sound consciously to yourself, and eventually what ends up happening is that you're observing and you're really just listening for the sound that's already in the breath. And so 
you're breathing and you're just listening and observing your breath and the silence and the in the breath, which is the self and the heart. There's a chant, I've done lots of chants from the George Hoffman, mm-hmm. and he has one that's like um, individualized and universalized, and it's just a hum, a hum, but when you start saying it, it just blends. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. So instead of it being a hum, a hum, it just becomes a hum, a hum, a hum, a hum, a hum. And it's just, but it, it, it's, it's really saying individual, universal. Yeah. But it just, it all works together. It's really cool. I think it's good. Yeah, and like um, in the meditation practice with Elisa, she's going to give you some mantras to work with. So allow this to evolve for you, right? If you don't have anywhere to start, right, do so well. Do this practice. If you have nowhere to start, read this and practice this. This is a good place to start. If you find something that comes across to you that really strikes the chord with you, that touches your heart, then do that. What I recommend is not switching every week. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going to empower whatever technique you're using. Right? So it's ideal if you practice the same technique throughout your lifetime, ultimately. But sometimes at the beginning, you need to figure out what that connection is. Now there's mantra that you can use for meditation, and then there's sometimes mantra that you're going to work with specifically. As time goes on, you might run across a mantra, or a teacher's going to give you a mantra that is for a specific goal. Right? So you might work with other mantras for specific goals. But your personal mantra is usually handed down from teacher to student. Or it's something that's general, like the Gayatri Mantra, the Mahamudra Jaya chant, or just something simple like general with a Ganesha chant. So, as you go through and get exposed to different mantras, you might find something that connects to you. It's, it's really interesting. Focus on something. I think Japa and Japa really works. It's really effective. And again, the more the mind is difficult to quiet down, the more complicated the mantra should be. So so hum might not really fully work for you. So you might need to do a more complicated mantra like connection. And repeat that. You might do a longer chant like the Gatri Mantra. You know, so the thing is, you have to remember. <laughs> so more complicated, right? Means that you're going to have to memorize if you get that. So essentially, you're setting your intention. You've got your warming up exercise written down. You got the body of your class, which will entail one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about eight postures, right, that you're going to practice. From Shavasana, your resting pose, you're going to get up, do your pranayama practice. Any of those first three is what I recommend starting with, unless you know of a specific practice that is effective for you. And then you'll do meditation. If you don't have your own technique or um, your own mantra that you feel you connect to yet, use the Soha mantra for the empty bowl meditation. That's only about 20 to 25 minutes.
take about a month to practice it. Right? If you're practicing asana in class, don't worry about the asana, but do the meditation in the pranayama. Right? And on the days that you're not doing meditation in pranayama, take about 30 days to practice this as regularly as you can. And let it evolve. Right? Make minor changes. Notice how the sequencing is going. Basically, the sequence kind of innately sets yourself up for compensation, right? How I was reflecting, like, it will innately kind of set you up for a level of compensation, right? With the finishing posture, again, when in doubt, twist it out. Do a gentle twist after every pose, after every practice. The balance, right? And you don't feel like... Um, once you guys start doing this, trust me, you are going to realize just how like accessible this is, how much you actually already know. You're going to realize how much you know once you just start doing it. For most of us, it's just the fear. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do afterward. You don't have to make it that complicated. From a teacher standpoint, when Jim and I start doing like different tiers of sequencing classes and stuff, we get more, we get really deep into the, the intricacies of it, but we spend a whole week on it. We've already gone over our entire ultimately. I mean, we just can't do it. But you're going to figure a lot of stuff out just by practicing. Trust me.